0: You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 196 is hopefully for the last time, what is truth? And we are joined by Simon Blackburn, professor at Cambridge and elsewhere, to discuss his just-released book, On Truth. For more information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark linton neither correspondent nor coherent in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Alwyn
1: in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan
2: Casey, Standing in the Bog in Madison, Wisconsin. And this is Simon Blackburn,
0: Standing in Cambridge. Welcome. This is a great honor. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this is your third book with the title of truth in it over the years. The first one we plunder is the big Oxford compendium of many, many articles, many more than we could read in a year on this podcast. We did dip into the Tarski and, and responses to Tarski, Davidson's response to Tarski, then also last time the Austin and Strawson Oh, the famous
3: debate,
0: yes. Showdown. Yes. And of course, we've done William James on the meaning of truth many, many years ago. So that's the first book that you started with that, having to cull through the vast literature to come up with the seminal articles to present in that. And then a few years ago, you wrote uh, Truth, A Guide to the Perplexed, which is a longer, I actually did read that a few weeks ago. Oh, good. Uh, (laughs) A longer kind of tour through the history of different thinkers on this. But this one on truth is in the Ideas in Profile Small introductions to big topics series. It is a mere 126 pages and is extremely readable for even somebody that's never read any philosophy before. Do you want to tell us a little about your journey through writing about this topic over the years? Well, sure. As
3: you say, I've got three books with the truth in the title. First one was a collaboration with my colleague Keith Simmons, who's a logician, better logician than I am. And um, it, uh, as you say, went through some of the classical views particularly um, uh, Strauss and Austin debate, Tarski, and of course, further back, Frege and Wittgenstein and everyone that we could find that had said something important about truth. So that was a very, in a sense, an academic book. It's a book for students of the subject. The second book was more general. It was Truth, A Guide for the Perplexed, which was really written in the early 2000s. It was a kind of Response to the postmodernist climate, which I felt was quite rampant at the time, there were people like Richard Rorty, no longer with us, unfortunately, saying that only metaphysical prigs believed in the notion of truth anymore. There was going to be a kind of revolution in philosophy in which we didn't think about things like objectivity, reason, probability, truth, and substituted instead rather sort of freewheeling conversations about things this is a version of skepticism. Rorty would have denied that, but it is. And I wanted to get to grips with it. And that was quite a big book as well, but in a very different vein, because I was looking at the postmodernist climate. I was looking at some of its ancestry in Nietzsche and some of its reflections in contemporary culture. So time moves on. And then I decided I'd write, when I was asked to write a little book about truth in profile. And I thought, well, yeah, I've still got space to distill things from those big books. And that's what I've tried to do in this. So it's a very slight in a way. It's very short, thank heavens. But it tries not to dumb down. This has always been my watchword in presenting philosophy. You can make it accessible without making it dumb. And that's what I try to do. So
1: this book, I have to say, is a pleasure to read. It's very, very nicely written. And Simon, as you said, it doesn't dumb anything down. So we've just been on the slog through some rather difficult papers. And so this is a refreshing and very, very clear break from that. And it's really interesting just to see the background of the debate from correspondence to coherence to pragmatism, deflationism, all that sort of laid out in a little history. After sort of being in the weeds, it's nice to get an overview of that And I think the other really nice thing about this book is the connection to aesthetics and ethics and religion, even though those are the standard part of the philosophical education and truth is important to them. I don't know. It's nice to see this explicit connection made between the varieties of theories of truth and different approaches, say, for instance, to ethics and aesthetics.
2: I concur with all of Wes's compliments about the book. Our weed whacking over the past couple of episodes has, uh, this was a welcome relief. You know, it has that pleasure when you've been in the weeds of feeling like, yeah, so you were able to say, in I don't know, like four sentences, I spent the past you know, four hours trying to work through in Tarski or something. <laughs> and, and why Tarski couldn't have just said it that way, <laughs> but we'll put that aside for a minute. So, uh, I've been a partisan of pragmatism for a very, very long time. In fact, I spent a lot of time reading Rorty as an undergrad and have gone back and forth between being enamored to being irritated. The fulcrum of that enamored versus irritated actually turns on this interpretation of truth. So my background as a scientist, I always found his uh, sort of contention and discussion about the conversation and the way we work out truths and stuff like that to be Actually, in your account at the end, the part that aligns with that kind of rough and ready figuring things out in the world, in media res aspect, just resonates. It's the way I want to interpret someone like Rorty. But of course, Rorty, in the end, says things like, but there's no such thing as truth, which is really, I've always found kind of uh, cognitively dissonant to have him saying both things at the same time. For me, reading the book, especially in alignment with the work we've been doing on classical theories of truth, which I was less familiar with, that came away feeling like the deflationary account and the pragmatic account sort of go hand in hand. <laughs> so I'm interested in talking about that.
3: Well, thank you both, uh, Wes and Dylan, for your very, uh, very handsome comments. I'm flattered and it's reassuring to know that the book has uh, some of the effects that I'd hoped for. That is, it's clear and it's readable and that it's generating interest in people which is all that a philosophy author can really hope for. We're not good at producing a bundle of laughs or strong drama, but we are, I hope, good at interesting people. I think you're absolutely right. Deflationism and pragmatism do have a lot in common because deflationism really tosses the ball back onto notions like belief and acceptance and assertion. There's nothing much to truth. Once you've got those up and running, truth comes along for free. And the way to think about belief, assertion, communication is, of course, in terms of its utility to us. I think I give the example in the book of Carl von Frisch, great uh, biologist, zoologist, who was the first person to really decipher what bees were doing when they were communicating with each other, honeybees. But he had to do that by looking at what the communications did for them, what changed their behavior after a communication. Well, it was they dashed off in the right direction for the right distance to collect the right amount of honey. So that was the signal that was being given. And it's this connection between practice and interpretation, which I think picks up the ball and runs with it. And that's a very pragmatist idea. So I'm really very proud to be following on in the footsteps of people like Peirce and James, Dewey even. I don't mention Dewey in the book, I don't think, but In a bigger treatment, I'd latch on to him as well. And he was, of course, a big influence on Rorty. So really, this book, you could see it as a remonstrance to Rorty that he's slightly mistaken the direction that pragmatism ought to lead him in. It led him into a kind of postmodernist scepticism about truth in science, about truth anywhere. And I want to argue that that's unwarranted. That When we learn the deflationist stroke pragmatist lesson, and uh, we see that there's no point in railing against truth. You might as well rail against human life. But it doesn't have all the pomp and panoply that people have sort of hoped for. It's a small notion. It plays a very useful role. Don't get uptight about it. So that's the that's the moral of the book. I think in a way you add something to what one might call a pure
1: coherence theory, coherence slash pragmatic theory of truth. And that's one that might lead to relativism, I think. By rejecting the notion like you adopted from this phrase from John McDowell, we have to avoid a belief system that is spinning frictionless in the void. Our beliefs have to at least be systematically connected to something mind-independent, to the world. We don't want to talk about correspondence, and I think you made it very clear why it becomes puzzling to think about beliefs as corresponding to the world. But I think we still need that causal connection. I think when you add that to pragmatism and a coherence theory, it becomes much, much more attractive than what the typical gloss that you get on those theories.
3: Well, I'm very pleased to hear that because that's certainly how I wanted to pitch it. That phrase of McDowell's pinpoints, I think, what's suspicious about a pure coherence theory. And it's telling that when back in the 80s, when people like Davidson, to some extent Putnam, were championing coherence theories and Rorty in one or two outings. They did give this image of the mind spinning frictionlessly in the void. And I think they forgot about the real nature of observation. They, as it were, didn't rub their noses in what happens if you try to make an accurate map or try to make an accurate menu or timetable. That is, you're intensely involved with the world. McDowell saw that too. He thought you had to make a Huge realist leaps in the philosophy of mind to sustain that thought. I don't think you do. I don't think you have to be as ambitious as McDowell was. Partly he leaves very little room for the notion of false belief, whereas I want to leave every room for the notion of a false belief. And so there's a difference there. But I take that phrase with gratitude from McDowell. And I think his instincts were exactly right at that point.
2: To me, this core well i see i want to use the word correspondence it's a good word you know there's nothing wrong with it as a word <laughs> yeah i mean part of it's because i guess in some ways i don't have the philosophical baggage of what correspondence has meant before my graduate education is as a scientist
3: oh right Dylan's a physicist okay good i admire you you're undoubtedly much better than i am. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Some of the work I do right now involves treating people's cancer with radiation. So, we all hope that that causally does something, and we also know that it will causally kill them if you do it wrong. So, <laughs> yeah, right.
3: You're an intensely world-involving. Exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly. What is the slice of correspondence that you want to keep? And I think Wes pointed out that you want to maintain essentially the disposition at least, the presupposition that there's a world out there that exists that you're that's called trying to align with, trying to figure out, trying to
1: think about. Trying to be systematically causally related to. Which oh, is okay. <laughs> not Simon's, I don't know, Simon, if that's your way of thinking about it exactly, but that's my way.
3: It's a good way. I mean, and I think the causal relationship has two sides. The first is observation. That's our obvious point of contact with the world is through sense experience. But then there's the output side where our contact with the world is via action. And, of course, we're intensely concerned with whether our actions meet our goals. You know, if you you cure cancer with radiation, you're going to be intensely concerned about the patient's future. That will require observation. You can't know whether your procedures have been successful without observing what happens to the patient. But I think it's that twofold relationship of getting information from the world and then being able to act upon it and needing to act upon it That locates us in the world. That's the moral. If you like, I mean, one thing I don't think I say in the book, but I might have said, is that the bit of correspondence that I would keep is as a response, respondents or response to the world. That must not be chucked out.
2: You start off talking about, you know, there's this kind of holiness or divine character of truth when you start talking about it. And one way I would characterize the progress of your discussion is to say that that that's sort of the problem is there's all kinds of things that go wrong in talking about truth that amount to making it divine in some way and it's either a overambitious yet external notion of looking on the world or it's an overambitious completeness that seems to be completely disconnected from the world. And the key is to reduce that ambition, frankly.
3: That's right, cut it down to size. Well, I've got two mottos at the preface, to the frontispiece to the book, and one which I particularly like is from C.S. Peirce, who says, We must not begin by talking of pure ideas. Vagabond thoughts that tramp the public highways without any human habitation, but must begin with men and their conversation. And I really love that because... It's when truth is sort of given a capital T and allowed to float into your mind without any anchorage that you can start feeling perplexed and what is it. Whereas if you look at how it works in conversation, practice, inquiry, everything comes slightly more domestic, more
0: down to earth, and everything is all right. So let me ask where that leaves the project of giving a definition. I mean, the Davidson that we most recently read that was in your big book was him telling us give up on the idea of being able to reduce the notion of truth to some more basic non-semantic notion. That the best that we can do is explain truth as one component in a network of concepts, all of epistemology, so that you can talk about truth in terms of these processes that we use to actually try to figure out information. We can talk about norms of reasoning. We can talk about what standards we want to have for what we're going to admit to the web of belief, and we can talk about the social aspect of those standards. And more or less, it seems like you just turn away from the idea. You know, all these correspondence theory, coherence theory, pragmatic theory, these folks are all trying to define truth. Instead of trying to do that, we're going to just forget about definition for the moment at least— investigate what actually goes on in particular areas when we're trying to find the truth, which is exactly what you would expect out of a disquotational or a... Deflationary, yeah. Deflationary view of truth where you're saying, it is true that P and P are really just saying the same thing. So if you're going to evaluate the truth of P, well, you look at what kind of claim P is and look at these various domains and look at what counts as evidence in those various domains. So what you get in the end is a picture of how the term truth functions in the various domains, how it relates to the other terms involved in the episteme. But you really don't get a definition, or if you do, it's kind of a speculative thing. Like, well, okay, we could call truth the ideal limit. This is what Peirce says as a definition. The ideal limit of inquiry But let's not start with that. Just talk about what inquiry is, and then if you have to come up with a definition, all right, well, (laughs) truth is the thing that we're shooting for.
3: That's a wonderful summary. I I couldn't have put it better at all myself, and I probably didn't in the book. Yes, I mean, my relationship with Davidson has got a, a little bit closer over the years, unfortunately, since he died. Because in the last couple of decades of the 20th century, I thought he was wrong about truth. I was a deflationist, and he's always resisted the idea of being a deflationist. But when you look closely at why he resisted that idea, I think I'm actually very close to him now. Because if you see it's not so much as a rejection of deflationism, but as an elaboration of it, then I think I can sign up to all the things he said. If I could just explain that, deflationism doesn't really define truth. I don't think. It can do. In the work of some deflationists, it's sometimes supposed to issue in a definition. But I think it's better an explanation. So in Paul Horwich's words, once you understand what an issue is, all you need to know is that the answer to the issue, suppose the answer is some proposition P. P is true if and only if P. That is, the content of the remark that a proposition is true is just the same as what you give if you assert the proposition. So you're adding nothing. Now Davidson knew that, and he or he accepted that I think, but he then rightly said, well what we've got to do is look at the meaning of the proposition. And that meaning is going to be given by its use, use in terms of what observations count in favour of it, what a difference it makes to our minds if we accept it what its cash value is. In William James's wonderful phrase, what's the particular go of it? Which I think is exactly where I end up in the book. I end up, in other words, being a Davidsonian with much more sympathy overtly to deflationism than Davidson himself had.
0: Maybe we should clarify these, because we brought up deflationism in the past two discussions, and in fact, I was saying that Tarski had an argument against deflationism, which you consider in here just that if you don't know what sentence in particular you're talking about, you can't just remove... Is true. The first sentence that Plato wrote is true. Right. Well, we can't just remove the is true from that and just and stay the first sentence because we don't know which one he wrote first. So that was an argument that I took that Tarski was making against deflationism. You're actually just saying No, that that's actually just in the evolution of deflationism. Why there's so many terms for deflationism yeah, right. is <laughs> that the original version was this disquotational. This is the kind Frege had, where you just say you put the term in quote and add is true, and then you say, Okay, remove the quotes, remove the is true. That's the same thing. That's The disquotational is literally removing the quotation marks, and that doesn't work for exactly the reason that I just said. However, there's plenty of other kinds, variations on that of still being able to say, well, it doesn't really add any intellectual content. So we talked about Strawson's deflationism that, well, it does add some rhetorical content. You're saying, yes-siree, or whatever, you know, yeah, it, by the it is true. Yeah, I think there are two things here. I mean, I
1: think... There are some different ways to take deflationism. One way, if you take it as meaning, well, it's kind of pointless to give a theory of truth. I don't really buy that. In fact, I think the sort of coherence plus friction view is a theory, and it's a good theory. I think one of the things that deflationism resists, though, and I think it's right to resist, is sort of this, a certain type of model of correspondence where you, you think of a belief as having this property, which is fine on analogy, but you think of it more literally, is belief is having this property of being true, for instance, in the way a cat might have the property of being black, which is extraordinarily misleading. Because, Simon, as you point out, I think beliefs really are more like dispositions. We're seduced into more imagistic or perceptual way of thinking about things. The cat is on the mat. I believe that, which is seems something like having that image in my mind, and that seems to be alike to the state of affairs in the world or something like that which is very, very misleading. Most of our beliefs don't fall into the category of something that we can imagine. And even then, the fact that we can imagine the cat on the mat is misleading, the belief is something else. And so you give the example of saying, attending to the fact that your mother's name is such and such, and then comparing the belief with the fact. I think once you start to think of a belief as more like a disposition in the sense that, and this is where I think Pierce is great, it sets the stage for a certain set of effects Expected effects when one begins to inquire. So the cat is on the mat. It sets up a certain number of hypotheticals. If I step on the mat, I'll be stepping on the cat. If I look in that direction, I will see the cat and so on and so forth. A very, very large number of hypotheticals that can be confirmed or disconfirmed in future experience. And once you start to think of things in that way, I think deflationism in the sense of thinking about truth as this property belonging to a belief, I think is really a useful thing, but I don't think. If it means that we ought to give up on a the theory of truth, then it's
3: not something I buy. Uh, thanks, Wes, for that. I think that's very helpful. I think one theme running through the pragmatists, especially person Dewey, I think not so much James, but person Dewey, and it was, it was picked up by Rorty and became, in a sense, the title of his most famous book, Mind of the Mirror of Nature, is hostility to the idea that it's by having something in your head as it might be, a concept or an idea or even a rule. But something in your head, it's by that means that you understand things and that beliefs arise. I mean, everyone realizes that, considered just as sounds or inscriptions, words would be dead. Words don't point beyond themselves. So then the idea arises, well, what gives them their power? What does the magic? And philosophers I think the empiricists, for example, the classical empiricists, thought, oh, ideas. We go back into the head, and in our head we've got ideas, and ideas have this property of pointing beyond themselves. The pragmatist said, no, thats it's not finding another thing. That's the goal. That's not going to work. It's going to be just as magical and mysterious and miraculous if there's something in your head points to the cat being on the mat, as it would be if a an inscription did or a sound what you've got to do is look at the use we make of it and the use we make of it is if we speak as the language we understand the sentence the cat is on the mat then of course we acquire or are hospitable to a whole host of dispositions which arise from that namely if i want to avoid treading on the cat i avoid treading on the mat and if i want to go into a room where there's no cat fur i don't go into the lounge and so on and so on So I think the idea is substituting the processes of inquiry and of getting satisfaction in our actions. We substitute those processes for the magic or miracle of having something in our head which points beyond ourselves. And I think that's a very, very important shift in emphasis. Rorty himself, I think, queered the pitch by saying, oh, this means we must do without any sense of representation. That person Dewey's attack shows that the notion of representation is dud. It's something to avoid. But that, again, is going overboard. It's perfectly okay to say that, you know, the symbol on the map represents a river. The red line on the map represents a road. There's nothing wrong with that. But it does it, not because when you see the red line, you're led to have an image of a river or a road. It does it because your practice changes when you see that symbol on the map. You no longer think you can walk in that direction without getting your feet wet, or you know the way to get to the town without walking cross-country. So it's the effects, the dispositions and the effects on practice which carry the can, which provide the muscle. Wittgenstein, of course, famously put this by saying, for many terms, if not all, if you want to know the meaning, look at the use, look for the use. That's the motto. And that's what I'm taking from Peirce as well, from him saying, don't look at the pure ideas, these vagabond thoughts that tramp the public highways with no human habitation, (laughs) but look at men and their conversation.
0: If you see looking at the individual practical practices as preliminary to then coming up with a definition, a theory of truth, as Wes says, maybe we don't want to give up on that, then is there a circularity problem? Because it seems like, okay, we're eventually going to define truth based on just saying it is the telos, it is the endpoint, it is the goal of these various successful practices, the ones that we regard as superior in practice. But how do we figure out which ones are superior in practice? Well, you might say it's because those are the ones that yield truth. This is why I think Davidsons were not actually founding a definition of truth based on the practices. They sort of come one and
1: the same. And if we say they just yield satisfaction, we open ourselves up to relativism.
3: Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's certainly true.
2: I mean, it's very difficult to
3: answer that question, which is why the book has part two. I don't just discuss the classical <laughs> theories. I'm trying to look at the nitty-gritty of discussion in areas where truth can seem especially fleeting and difficult to come by, and it's difficult to get hold of. And that's ethics and aesthetics and religion and those contested areas. I think the problem that lacking really authoritative methods, the methods that everybody agrees on. When we lack that, somehow we need a definition of truth. I think that's probably a false term because take something everybody does agree on. If you want to know whether there are potatoes in the cool box, you look in the cool box. The first thing you do, probably the last thing you ever need to do, you just look and you see and that's it. it, settles it. Now, obviously, when we come to ethics and aesthetics and religion, we're not going to get that kind of clunk click that settles it, that's done and dusted experience. So it's going to be much more contestable. There's going to be divergence of opinion. There's going to be difficulty in convincing ourselves that we've got the one and only truth. What I want to do is look at the practices in a sense that substitute for that. Now, there may be practices which give us satisfactions of various kinds. And then there's going to be a very difficult problem about how we think of relating truth to those satisfactions. And you're absolutely right that at this point, the uh, nasty specter of relativism might raise its head. The specter of skepticism can raise its head. But I think that it only raises its head if you go back to worrying about the abstract notion. If you keep your feet on the ground... I argue, that it doesn't. It subsides into the background.
2: The way we've been talking about it, truth is not a property, it's not a relationship. This is one of the problems with correspondence theory. But part of what I think we're trying to sort out is we have other phrases. Like One phrase we'd want to preserve, I think, we'd want to maintain some kind of meaning to, is when we talk about finding the truth of the matter, we're trying to answer a question about things. And we mean something by that. So in that way, truth ends up being a kind of explanation insofar as that you're using an explanation to talk about what you mean by something being true. (laughs) (laughs) And Wes was talking about not needing a definition of truth. It seems that there's something else that we have to agree on. We don't have to. We're not going to agree on a definition of truth. And that is a false hope, a false path. But there is something we're going to have to agree on in order to even be talking about truth. Insofar as an explanation, it's going to have any force at all because it's going to end up being fundamentally related to how we take that explanation and how we communicate that explanation to whether or not it has any force. And I guess to me, I think this is where you easily get pulled off into these more abstract notions. These not on, you're not, not your feet on the ground notions because you want to say that even if you're not convinced by my explanation, it's still true, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to have the acceptance necessarily be about the adjudication that's one of the avenues that relativism will come into and this brings us sort of to your introduction and this question of the post-truth world right post-fact world i think that's in part what is at issue there is what it means to give a go of it so that there's an explanation that we all walk away with more or less there's something for us
3: to agree upon right Yes, I think I'm on your wavelength. I'm a little perplexed by the idea of an explanation coming in so quickly. I mean, you said right at the beginning, and I thought this was dead right, that we think of presenting the truth as the same thing as answering a question. Of course, answering the question truthfully, that is <laughs> answering it uh, with the answer we think it deserves, the answer mm-hmm. that is to be given. And then, of course, but we answer questions without explicitly deploying the idea of truth. Uh, You say, where's the cat? I say, it's in the garden. Well, it's on the map. If you say, um, what's the right dose of radiation to cure this cancer? And I believe it's such and such. I say, it's such and such. So we answer the questions that way. And of course, the scientist's explanation of why we're successful needn't itself ever introduce the notion of truth. The scientist doesn't step back and look at his own sayings and then employ some notion of truth the scientist repeats what the science tells him which will be something about in the case of radiation something about gamma rays or whatever it might be and something about tumors and something about the forces at play and the effect on cells of various different procedures and so on and so on all the wonderful things that the science tells them none of which is about truth truth has a kind of ancillary role and that's why it was first of all called redundancy theory and and Ramsey, but later for reasons that were mentioned under attack, we decided we needed it after all. And so it's flown back in under the title of deflationism. I think there's probably more to say
2: about it in that I agree that all those particulars that you just described is a a characteristic of it, but I think the more to say is there's a whole host of characteristics of Figuring out things truly that, that are sort of in the kit for a scientist, right? You mentioned it might be in the second section about a very brief aside about the concerns of philosophy of science, which are about why the preoccupation with simplicity. Is it really doing anything? What does it mean to quantify something? What is the force of experiment on validating a theory? Is it really validating a theory? All those kinds of things. But at the very least, even if you end up questioning how they're working, there is something pretty accurate about them as a set of tools in the kit that they're just the way you do science. I mean, if you're not doing it that way, if you don't presume there's an external world out there that you're working with, you might be doing something, but you're not doing science. If you're not assuming that many, many things can be quantified, right? then you're not basically doing science. If you don't more or less have the predisposition that there's a causal explanation for something, and that more or less it's going to be a simpler one versus a not simple one. You're not going to make very much progress on it.
3: That's right. I mean, if I came into the laboratory and avoided all the procedures, the yes. the way things are done, yes, people won't say I'm a bad scientist. They won't say I'm a scientist at all. I might. That's exactly right. I might be some sort of conceptual artist who's guying the whole procedure or something.
2: Yeah. If you walked into an auto shop and you started laying hands on the car, right? You would say, you're not a car mechanic, you're
3: something else. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yes. <laughs> a priest. Could I go back to something that was said earlier? That Tarski and, and others, they went beyond the redundancy theory, which and it's right, they did. The reason they went beyond it is because we have indirect ways of referring to what people said. So, for example, if I tell you, Everything Einstein said about space-time was true. I haven't told you what he said. And you can't get rid of the notion of truth from that sentence. You've got to say something or something equivalent. Everything he said was correct or everything he said was right. And that, of course, is true. The deflationist approach to that is to say, look, I put you in a kind of waiting state. That is... I've certainly told you something. Everything you said was true. Maybe it's up to true or false, but let's suppose everything you said was true. What I've done is I've put you in a state such that if or when you come to learn what Einstein said, then you should accept it or go back on or call me a liar, call me mistaken. That is, if or when you learn that Einstein said E equals MC squared or whatever it might be, then given that you've got in your locker that everything Einstein said was true, then you think, oh, so E equals MC squared. That's interesting. I didn't know that, and so on and so on. So I, I, it's as it were I change your state, but I change it by giving you a disposition to accept a proposition when it arrives. So my comparison I quite like is you and your partner are watching Wimbledon. You go out to make some tea, coffee in the United States and uh, you hear your wife say, I love the way Federer does that. Now, you didn't see what he did. So you know there's something he did which was really good, or your wife thought was really good, but you don't know what it was. But you're in a state such that if you come back and your wife replays it, you will learn what it was, or you potentially can learn what it was that your wife admired. But it's only at that point that you know what it was that your wife admired. When you heard to say I love the way Federer does that, the that didn't pinpoint what the action was or the yeah, the action was that he performed. And it's a bit like if I say oh you hear mutterings from the physics lab next door and say Einstein knew that. You're not privy to what the that referred to. Well, you know that you could go in and ideally you'd find out that there was some Something that was being talked about, which Einstein knew, at least according to one of the participants in the conversation, Einstein knew. So it's like being in a waiting state or in a potential state. To realise the potential, you have to discover what proposition Einstein came up with. And deflationists say that's fine by them, that's fine. Because the notion of truth is here put on the table as a kind of token. It could be imitated by a whole string of conditionals if our languages were finite. If Einstein said P, P. If Einstein said P prime, P prime. If Einstein said P double prime, P double prime. So if our language was finite, you could get the same result with a list of conditionals. Our language isn't finite, at least it's, it's not countably finite. So... You can't do that. So you need a device of generalization. People sometimes say, ah, truth is a device of generalization, which sounds very mysterious, but that's all it really amounts to. I'm still ready to defend the idea that it's useful to have a theory
1: of truth, even if we want Mm. to remove the word truth and say, all right, well, what are the conditions of successful acceptance, let's say? It interests me that falsity, there's not a, in a way, I think of falsity as the more primitive concept and i wonder if we would be even using the predicate true if if falsity weren't possible but in defending a the theory of truth so i for instance i think it's it's a theory of truth to talk about belief as a disposition and to talk about a set of coherent beliefs that are somehow causally systematically related to the world as it is through causality and so on and so forth we want to know on this theory what it is the the conditions of successful acceptance versus those of unsuccessful acceptance. And I think even when we reject, say, a simple correspondence theory as being an adequate theory, then we're inevitably, we're advancing some other sort of theory. And I don't think Tarski, I just don't think Tarski is in that business of giving a theory in the philosophical
3: sense. No. Well, I, I try to I try to say that too in in, in the chapter, little very little chapter on the so-called semantic theory of truth. Right? Yeah, I wish I would talked more about falsity. In fact, it's awful. This book was written by 2016, the beginning of 2016, actually, and published that year in, in England. And if it was, you know, if I'd waited till the end of 2016, <laughs> if only I'd worked slower, I'd have called it post-truth colon, fake news, <laughs> because... <laughs> right, But that is also the classic
1: sort of philosophical puzzle, right, that we find in yeah. dialogues like the Theaetetus and elsewhere. The classic puzzle is how is error possible? How is yeah. false belief possible?
3: But yeah. yeah, and that is, uh, going back just a moment, we mentioned John McDowell earlier, and I said, well, I, I thought he got into a, a philosophy of mind, which I wasn't very fond of, although he said the right thing about coherence not being enough. And the charge against his philosophy of mind is that he doesn't make significant room for error. An erroneous belief is a belief, and it's a belief with the same content as it would have had if it was true. So there's no difference from the subjective perspective in holding a true belief and a false belief. That's because it's up to the world, whether it's true or it's false. Well, there can be a difference if it's a belief about yourself, for example. But If it's a belief about, I don't know, the cocoa production of Africa, then there's no difference between getting it right and getting it wrong from the inside. Right. And if you look at the corresponding brain state, it's not like there's an
1: extra little structure there that marks its truth or falsity as a property of the brain
3: state. I would hope not. No. (laughs) Yes. I don't think neurologists are ever going to be able to t- tell the <laughs> cocoa production of Sorry, Africa. We've, we've yeah. discovered. <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs> FMRIs can, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They can't do it.
0: You don't think they're going to discover monads <laughs>
1: <laughs> that reflect the re- <laughs> But you're, you're saying, Simon, that from the subjective
3: standpoint, it's the same, yeah. Exactly. And uh, I don't think, I mean, there, there have been philosophers had have to have an awful struggle with that. And you could argue, as you rightly say, that in the Theotetus, Plato started a struggle with that.
2: Maybe I'm misunderstanding something. Are we saying that the, the subjective experience of truth and falsity
3: is the same? No, just say, just if you've got a belief, mm-hmm. by deflationist standards, to have a belief and to suppose that the belief is true is the same thing. Yep. But of course, your belief might be false, and you'd be equally false in affirming the belief and affirming that that belief is true. Yes. That's all. Yeah. No, I mean, being called out having been wrong is a very different matter from being called out having been right about something. And being wrong about it can be fatally different from being right about it. If I go off in the blizzard, and I'm right about where the shelter is, I survive. If I'm wrong about it, I die.
2: There is this funny phenomenon, though, of a kind of willfulness with respect to false belief. Where it ties back to this divine notion of truth, where you're utterly convinced of something. And the part of me wants to say, the force of the facts have no effect on you. (laughs) But that's the wrong way.
3: It's uh, being a little bit glib with with things. Yeah, but it's pointing to something very important, which uh, you may find... um, in the politics in the United States at present, we're certainly finding a Britain I don't know what you're
2: talking about. <laughs>
3: <laughs> in, in Britain at present, I mean, I believe and most people I know believe that the last two years have revealed hitherto unsuspected and huge costs in Brexit, in the proposal that Britain leave the European Union. It's become harder and harder to believe that that's going to be anything except a catastrophe. And yet very, very few, no opinion polls show that anybody's changed their mind. So there's an enormous stickiness to beliefs. People find it very hard to change their beliefs, even when the evidence starts piling up that they're wrong. I think part of the problem though is we are,
1: most of our beliefs depend upon our trust of other human beings. Most of our so-called knowledge is really secondhand. And the more paranoid we are, the more likely we are to come up with explanations of why we are being systematically deceived and we can always we can always use that to because for someone like me i accept the science on global warming and you know and i've done enough study to know the basic mechanisms and the basic arguments but of course i would never understand the models and i would never understand how those models are calibrated to get the results they do and i know nothing about the literature and really i'm relying on other human beings. I think the thing that we are most certain about when we accept things as true or are false is we have a theory of human motivation. We have theories about under what conditions are people going to be deceptive? What's in it for them? Is it psychologically plausible for vast conspiracies and lots of people cooperating and so on and so forth? So those are the things we believe in, And if those are, you know, if we feel our trust is violated, then we convince ourselves, you know, well, there is, there was no moon landing. Or any other outlandish thing we like. So that's part of our predicament. And no, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, but that's a, those are
3: problems of practical epistemology, you know, who, who to trust, who's trustworthy. What are the odds that all these scientists are in a conspiracy or whatever it might be? And I suppose the unfortunate thing about the contemporary climate is that it's easier to be paranoid because there are more voices clamoring in more directions than we ever used to get. At least I think that's true because of the web, of course. So, you you know, you can live in your bubble and listen to nothing but Fox News, or live in a bubble and read nothing but the tabloid press, which has a very fanciful view of Brexit, and just refuse to look at any other evidence at all. And this, this worry about the silos and the misrepresentations of trustworthiness is an epistemological problem. But it's not really a problem about truth. It's a problem about getting to know things. That's why I'd like to
0: have called the book Post-Truth Fake News. (laughs) um, And before we end uh, the first half here, speaking of things that had you published a little later that you probably would have changed using Einstein as the example of everybody's <laughs> beliefs is true. I believe everything Einstein believed except for all the racist stuff early in his life <laughs> yeah, is true.
3: Yeah. Where is, where is somebody without feet of clay? <laughs> but I want to say one, one more thing before we, we break, which sure. is, uh,
1: we're all in the same epistemological predicament, which is that however much we think something is true and believe we know it to be true. We can't know. I'm not really trying to advance. I know, I know skepticism is not your, your favorite thing, but we're on the predicament of being fallible and our sense of certainty is not a good guide. And yet, so the other side politically thinks that they're just as right and that we are just as deceived. And th- so those feelings attending the propositions we claim to be true are not in and of themselves good guides. The guide in a way is more of a public evolving standard. I think you mentioned this in the first part, this sense that the truth will out and that the methods of inquiry will ultimately establish some sort of consensus. So what I'm saying is I think there is a truth of the matter, but I think we are all of us in this sort of radical epistemological predicament. And of course I do think the other side is wrong and I have lots of arguments to say why. And I'm not a, I'm not a relativist, but. And beyond that, I think so theory of truth does touch upon that in touching upon the conditions of acceptance or conditions, what are the conditions of truth? And they have a lot to do with the conditions of good inquiry and so on. And I think it would be a mark of political health if people were actually have some devotion to certain norms of inquiry. And if we advocate and support devotion to those norms of inquiry, rather than engaging in the same sort of partisan banter back and forth
3: where we try and enforce some result. Because obviously it doesn't work. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And of course, when we look at inquiry, surely we've got plenty of examples of cases where it's been conducted well, and that's turned out to improve our practice. And no doubt cases where it's not been conducted well, and that's turned out not to improve our practice. So it seems to me bizarre that, you know, there are people who query the authority of science. When they only have to look at the history and see that through painstaking increases in knowledge throughout the 19th century, well, the 18th and 19th centuries, painstaking use of mathematics, painstaking use of very delicate experimental techniques, you've got iPhones. Now, you wouldn't have got you wouldn't have got those, you
1: know. If- but then, the, then the question is, what counts as science? You know, there's this crisis of replication right now. There are these this yeah. glut of papers which and and there are, it doesn't help that there are newspaper articles saying scientists have discovered fat and your diet is bad for you and weight no it's not yeah. all of that stuff will lead to doubt on the part of the public about what actually counts as science which is not a completely delusional sort of attitude so it, it can become delusional but these sorts of things have their source in something
3: yeah and and of course there's also the corruptions of money you know right that is especially in medical science i think it's There's a British writer, Ben Goldacre. Do you you know the name? I don't. He's a doctor, and he writes about medical science. And he gave a meta-study in which 52 studies of painkillers, each of them said that the painkiller that was most effective was the one that was the product of the company that had sponsored the trials. (laughs) Of course it is. Surprising,
1: surprising results.
3: (laughs) When you get so-called science like that, then, of course, mistrust is going to breed.
0: And rightly so. Let's let that be the last comment of our first half here. Folks that don't want to wait until next week to hear the whole discussion should go to partiallyexaminedlife.com, become citizens, or patreon.com slash partiallyexaminedlife and sign up at the $5 level and you can get the full discussion. The rest of it that we're just about to have in a few minutes here, right now. See you then.